The Lovely Bones by Alice Sybil, Chapter 3. The odd thing about Earth was what we saw when we looked down. Besides the initial view that you might suspect, the old ants from the skyscraper phenomenon were souls. There were souls leaving bodies all over the world. Holly and I could be scanning Earth, alighting on one scene or another for a second or two, looking for the unexpected in the most mundane moment, and a soul would run by a living being, touch them softly on the shoulder or cheek, and continue on its way to heaven. The dead are never exactly seen by the living, but... Many people seem acutely aware of something changed around them. They speak of a chill in the air. The mates of the deceased wake from, from dreams and see a figure standing at the end of their bed or in a doorway or boarding phantom like a city bus. On my way out of Earth, I touched a girl named Ruth. She went to my school, but we'd never been close. She was standing in my path that night when my soul shrieked out of Earth. I could ha not help but gaze but graze her. Once released from life, having lost it in such violence, I couldn't calculate my steps. I didn't have time for contemplation. In violence, it is the getting away that you concentrate on. When you begin to go over the edge, life receding from you as a boat recedes inevitably from this from the shore. You hold on to death tightly like a rope that will transport you and you swing on it hoping only to land away from where you are. Like a phone call from the jail cell I brushed by Ruth Connors wrong number, accidental call I saw her standing there near Mr. Bott's red and rusted Fiat. When I streaked by her my hand leapt out to touch her touch the last face, feel the last connection of earth and this not so standard issue teen girl. On the morning of December 7th, Ruth complained to her mother about having had a dream that seemed too real to be a dream. When her mother asked what she meant, Ruth said, I was crossing through the faculty parking lot, and suddenly down out of the soccer field, I saw a pale, running ghost coming toward me. Mrs. Connors stirred the hardening oatmeal in its pot. She watched her daughter just a calculating with the long, thin figures of her hands, hands she had inherited from her father. It was female, I could sense that, Ruth said. It flew up out of the fields, its eyes were hollow. It had a thin white veil over its body, as light as cheesecloth. I could see its face through it, the features coming up through it, the nose, the eyes, the face, the hair. Her mother took the oatmeal off the stove and lowered the flame. Ruth, she said, you're letting your imagination get the best of you. Ruth took the cue to shut up. She did not mention the dream. That was not a dream again. Even ten days later, when the story of my death began to travel through the halls of the school, receiving add-on nuances, as all good horror stories do, they were hard-pressed, my peers, to make the horror any more horrible than it was. But the details were still missing. The what and when and who became hollow bowls to fill with their conjectures, devil worship, midnight racing. Try as I might, I could not point Ruth strongly enough to what no one had found. My silver charm bracelet. I thought it might help her. It lay exposed, waiting for a hand to reach out, a hand that would recognize it and think, clue. But it was no longer in the cornfield. Ruth began writing poetry. If her mother or her more approachable teachers did not want her 
want to hear the darker reality she had experienced, she would cloak this reality in poetry. How I wish Ruth could have gone to my family and talked to them. In all likelihood, no one but my sister would have even known her name. Ruth was the girl who got chosen next to last in gym. She was the girl when a volleyball sailed in her direction, cowered where she stood while the ball hit the gymnasium floor beside her. Her teammates and the gym teacher tried hard not to groan. As my mother sat in the straight-back chair in our hallway watching my father run in and out on his various errands of responsibility, we would now be hyper-aware of the movements and the whereabouts by his young son of his wife and his remaining daughter. Ruth took our accidental meeting in the school parking lot and went underground. She went through old yearbooks and found my class photo as well as any activity photos like chem club and cut them out with her mother's swan-shaped embroidery scissors. Even as her obsession grew, I I remained wary of her until the last week before Christmas when she saw something in the hallway of our school. It was my friend Clarissa and Brian Nelson. I dubbed Brian the Scarecrow because even though he had incredible shoulders that all the girls mooned over, his face reminded me of a burlap, sack, a burlap sack stuffed with straw. He wore a flappy leather hippie hat and smoked hand-rolled cigarettes in the student smoking lounge. According to my mother, Clarissa's penchant for baby blue eyeshadow was an early warning sign, but I'd always liked her for just this reason. She did things I wasn't allowed to do. She lightened her long hair. She wore platform shoes. She smoked cigarettes after school. Ruth came upon the two of them, but they didn't see her. She had a pile of huge books she had borrowed from Mrs. Kaplan, the social science teacher. They were all early feminist texts, and she had them with with their spines resting against her stomach so that no one could see what they were. Her father, a building contractor, had made her a gift of two super strong elastic book bands, but Ruth had placed two of them around the volumes she planned to read over vacation. Clarissa and Brian were giggling. His hand was inside her shirt. As he inched up, her giggling increased, but she thwarted his advances each time by twisting or moving an inch or two away. Ruth stood apart from this, as she did most things. She would have passed it in her usual manner, head down, eyes averted, but everyone knew Clarissa had been my friend, so she watched. Come on, honey, Brian said. Just a little mound of love. Just one. I noticed Ruth's lip curl in disgust. Mine was curling up in heaven. Brian, I can't not hear. How about in the cornfield? He whispered. Clarissa giggled nervously but nuzzled the space between his neck and shoulder. For now, she would deny him. After that, Clarissa's lacquer was burgled. Gone were her scrapbook, random photos stuck inside their locker, and Brian's stash of marijuana, which had hidden there without Clarissa's knowledge. Ruth, who had never been high, spent that night emptying out the tobacco from her mother's long brown more 100s and stuffing them with pot. She sat in the tool shed with a flashlight, looking at photos of me and smoking more grass than even the potheads at school could suck down. Mrs. Connor, standing at the kitchen window doing dishes, caught a whiff of the scent coming from the tool shed. I think Ruth is making friends at school, she said to her husband, who sat 
over his copy of Evening Bulletin with a cup of coffee. At the end of the workday, he was too tired to even speculate. Good, he said. Maybe there's hope for her yet. Always, he said. When Ruth tottered in later that night, her eyes bleary from using the flashlight and from the eight more cigarettes she'd smoked. Her mother greeted her with a smile and told her there was a blueberry pie in the kitchen. It took a few days and some non-Susie salmon-focused research, but Ruth discovered why she had eaten the entire pie in one sitting. The air in my heaven often smelled like skunk. Just a hint of it. It was a smell I'd always loved on earth. When I breathed it in, I could feel the scent as well as smell it. It was the animal's fear and power mixed together to form pungent, lingering musk. In Franny's heaven, it smelled like pure, grade-A tobacco. In Holly's, it smelled like kumquats. I would sit whole days and nights in the gazebo and watch, see Clarissa spin away from me toward the comfort of Brian, see Ruth staring at her from behind a corner near, near the home ec room or outside the cafeteria near the nurse's station. At the start, the freedom I had to see the whole school was intoxicating. I would watch the assistant football coach leave anonymous chocolates for the married science teacher or the head of the cheerleading squad trying to capture the attention of the kid who had been expelled so many times from so many schools, even he had lost count. I watched the art teacher make love to his girlfriend in the kiln room and the principal moon over the assistant football coach. I concluded that this assistant football coach was a stud in the world of Kenneth Junior High, even if his square jaw left me cold. On the way back to the duplex each night, I would pass under old-time street lamps that I'd seen once in a play of our town. The glows alight hung down in the arc from iron post. I remembered them because when I saw the play with my family, I thought of them as giant heavy berries full of light. I made a game in heaven positioning myself so that my shadow plucked the berries and I made, as I made my way home. After watching Ruth one night, I met Franny in the midst of this. The square was deserted. The leaves began to swirl around in an eddy up ahead. I stood and looked at her, at the laugh lines that were clustered near her eyes and mouth. Why are you shivering? Franny asked. As though the air was damp, although and though the air was damp and chilly, I cannot say that was why. I can't help thinking to my mother, I said. Franny took my left hand in both of hers and smiled. I wanted to kiss her lightly on the cheek or have her hold me, but instead I watched her walk off in front of me, saw her blue dress trail away. I knew she was not my mother. I could not play pretend. I turned around and went back to the gazebo. I felt the moist air lace its way up my long, along my legs and arms, lifting ever so slightly the ends of my hair. I thought of spiderwebs in the morning, how they had small jewels of dew, how the light movement of the wrist, I used to destroy them without thinking. On the morning of my 11th birthday, I had woken up very early. No one else was up yet, or so I thought. I crept downstairs and looked into the dining room where I assumed my presence would be. There was nothing there. Same table as yesterday, but as I turned around, I saw it lying on my mother's desk in the living room. The fancy desk with the always clean surface. The bill pain desk was what they called it. Swaddled in tissue paper, but not yet wrapped, was a camera. What I'd asked for with a tinge of whining in my voice, so sure they would not get it for me. 
I went over to it and stared down. It was an Instamatic, and lying beside it were three cartridges of film and a box of four square flash bulbs. It was my first machine, my starter kit to becoming what I wanted to be, a wildlife photographer. I looked around. No one. I saw through the front blinds, which my mother always kept at ha a half slant, inviting but discreet. That Grace Tarkin, who lived down the street and went to a private school, was walking with ankle weights strapped to her feet. Hurriedly, I loaded the camera and began to stalk Grace Tarkin as I would, I imagined when I grew older, stalk wild elephants and rhinos. Here, I hid behind blinds and windows. There, it would be high reeds. I was quiet. What I thought of as stealthy, gathering the long hem of my flannel nightgown up in my free hand, I traced her movements past our living room, our living room, front hall, into the den on the other side. As I watched her receding form, I had a brainstorm. I'd run into the backyard where I could see her with no barriers. So I ran on tiptoe into the back of the house, only to find the door to the porch wide open. When I saw my mother, I forgot all about Grace Tarkin. I wish I could explain it better than this, but I'd never seen her sitting so still, so not there, somehow. Outside the screened-in porch, she was sitting on an aluminum fold-out chair that was facing the backyard. In her hand, she held a saucer, and in the saucer was a customary cup of coffee. That morning, there were no lipstick marks, because there was no lipstick until she put it on for... Who? I never thought to ask the question. My father? Us? Holiday was sitting near the bird bath, panting happily, but he did not notice me. He was watching my mother. She had a stare that stretched to infinity. She was in that moment, not my mother, but something separate from me. I looked at what I had never seen as anything but my mom and saw the soft, powdery skin of her face, powdery without makeup soft without help her eyebrows and eyes were a set piece together ocean eyes my father called her when he wanted one of her chocolate covered cherries which she kept hidden in the liquor cabinet as a private treat now i understood the name i thought it was because they were blue but now i saw it was because they were bottomless in a way that i found frightening i had an instinct then not a developed thought and it was that, before Holiday saw and smelled me, before the dewy mist hovering over the grass evaporated, and the mother inside her woke as it did every morning. I should take a photograph with my new camera. When the roll came back from the Kodak plant in a special heavy envelope, I could see the difference immediately. There was only one picture in which my mother was Abigail. It was the first one, the one taken of her unawares. The one captured before the clicks startled her into the, mud into the mother of the birthday girl, owner of the happy dog, wife of the loving man, and mother again to another girl and a cherished boy. Homemaker, gardener, sunny neighbor. My mother's eyes were oceans, and inside them there was loss. I thought I had my whole life to understand them, but that was only the day I had. Once upon earth, I saw her as Abigail, and then I let it slip effortlessly back. My fascination held in check by wanting her to be my mother and envelope me as that mother. I was in the gazebo, thinking of the photo, thinking of my mother, when Lindsay got up in the middle of the night. 
and crept across the hall. I watched her as I would burglar I watched her as I would a burglar circling a house in a movie. I knew she turned the knob to my room it would give. I knew she would get in. But what would she do in there? Already my private territory had become a no man's land in the middle of our house. My mother had not touched it. My bed was still unmade from the hurried morning of my death. My flowered hippo laid among the sheets and pillows, and so did an outfit I discarded before I chose the yellow bell bottoms. Lindsay walked across the soft rug and touched the navy skirt and red blue crocheted vests that were two, two separate, hatedly despised balls. She had an orange and green vest made from the same pattern. She took the vest and spread it out flat on the bed, smoothing it. It was ugly and precious all at once. I could see that. She petted it. Lindsay traced the outline of the gold tray I kept on my dresser, filled with pins from elections in school. My favorite was a pink pin that said, Hippy Dippy says love, which I found in the school parking lot, but had to promise my mother I wouldn't wear. I kept a lot of pins on that tray and pinned to a giant felt banner from Indiana University where my father had gone to school. I thought she would steal them, take one or two to wear, but she didn't. She didn't even pick them up. She just swept her fingertips over everything on the tray. She saw a tiny white corner sticking out from underneath. She pulled. It was the picture. A deep breath rushed out of her, and she sat down on the floor, her mouth still open and her hand still holding the picture. The tethers were rushing and whipping about around her like a canvas tent came loose from its stakes. She too, like me, until the morning of that photograph, had never seen the mother stranger. She had seen the photos right after, my mother looking tired but smiling, my mother in holiday standing in front of the dogwood tree as the sun shot through her robe and gown, but I had wanted to be the only one in the house that knew my mother was also someone else, someone mysterious and unknown to us. The first time I broke through, it was an accident. It was December 23rd, 1973. Buckley was sleeping. My mother had taken Lizzie to the dentist. That week they had agreed that each day as a family they would spend time trying to move forward. My father had assigned himself the task of cleaning the upstairs guest room, which long ago became his den. His own father had taught him how to build ships and bottles. They were something my mother, sister, and brother couldn't care less about. It was something I adored. The den was full of them. All day at work, he counted numbers, due diligence for a Chad's Ford insurance firm, and at night, he built the ships or read Civil War books to unwind. He would call me in whenever he was ready to raise the sail. By then, the ship would have been glued fast to the bottom of the bottle. I would come in, and my father would ask me to shut the door. Often, it seemed the dinner bell rang immediately, as if my mother had a sixth sense for things that didn't include her. When the sense failed her, my job was to hold the bottle for him. Stay steady, he'd say. You're my first mate. Gently, he would draw the one string that still reached out of the bottle's neck, and Viola, the sails all rose, from a simple mast to a chipper ship. We had our boat. I couldn't collapse because I held the bottle, but I always wanted to. My father worked quickly then burning the end of the string off inside the bottle with a coat hanger he'd heated over a candle. 
if he did it improperly, the ship would be ruined. Or worse still, the tiny paper sails would catch on fire, and suddenly, in a giant whoosh, I'd be holding a bottle of flames in my hands. Eventually, my father built a balsa wood stand to replace me. Lindsay and Buckley didn't share my fascination. After trying to create enough enthusiasm for all three of them, he gave up and retreated to his den. One ship in a bottle was equal to any other as far as the rest of my family was concerned. But he cleaned that day. He talked to me. Susie, my baby little sailor girl, he said, you always liked these smaller ones. I watched him as he lined up the ships and bottles on his desk, bringing them over from the shelves where they usually sat. He used an old shirt of my mother's that had been ripped into rags and began dusting the shelves. Under his desk, there were empty bottles, rows and rows of them we had collected for a future shipbuilding. In the closet were more ships, the ships he had built with his own father, ships he had built alone, and then those we had made together. Some were perfect, but their sails browned. Some had sagged or toppled over time. Then there was the one that had burst into flames the week before my death. He smashed that one first. My heart seized up. He turned and saw all, all the others, all the years they marked in the hands that held him, his dead fathers, his dead childs. I watched him as he smashed the rest. He cushioned the walls and the wooden chair with the news of my death, and after, he stood in the guest room slash den, surrounded by green glass. The bottles, all of them, lay broken on the floor, the sails and the boat bodies strewn among them. He stood in the wreckage. It was then that without knowing how, I revealed myself. In every piece of glass, in every shard and sliver, I cast my face. My father glanced down around him, his eyes roving across the room. Wild. It was just for a second, and then I was gone. He was quiet for a moment, and then he laughed, a howl coming up from the bottom of his stomach. He laughed so loud and deep. I shook with it in my heaven. He left the room and went down the two doors to my bedroom. The hallway was tiny, my door, like all others, hollow, hollow enough to easily punch a fist through. He was about to smash the mirror of my dresser, rip the wallpaper down with his nails, but instead he fell against my bed, sobbing and bawled the lavender sheeps up in his hands. Daddy, Buckley said. My brother held the doorknob with his hand. My father turned, but was unable to stop his tears. He slid to the floor with the sheets still in his fists. He opened up his arms. He had asked my brother twice, which he had never had to do before, but Buckley came to him. My father wrapped my brother inside the sheets that smelled of me. He remembered the day I begged him to paint and paper my room purple. Remembered removing the old National Geographics from the bottom shelves of my bookcase and wanted to steep myself in wildlife photography. Remembered when there was just one child in the house for the briefest of time until Lindsay arrived. You are so special to me, little man, my father said, clinging to him. Buckley drew back and stared at my father's creased face. The fine bright spots had tears at the corners of his eyes. He nodded seriously and kissed my father's cheek, something so divine that no one up in heaven could have made up. The 
care a child took with an adult. My father draped the sheets around Buckley's shoulders and remembered how I would fall out of the tall four-poster bed and onto the rug, never waking up. Sitting in his study in his green chair and reading a book, he'd be startled by the sound of my body landing. He'd get up and walk the short distance to my bedroom. He liked to watch me sleeping soundly, unchecked by nightmare or even hardwood floor. He swore in those moments that his children would be kings or rulers or artists or doctors or wildlife photographers. Anything they dreamed they could be. A few months before I died, he had found me like this, but tucked inside my sheets with me was Buckley in his pajamas with his bear, curled up against my back, sucking deep, sleepily on his thumb. My father had felt in that moment the first flicker of the strange, sad mortality of being a father. His life had given birth to three children, so the number called him. No matter what happened to Abigail or to him, the three would have one another. In that way, the line he had begun seemed immortal to him, like a strong steel filament threading into a furniture, continuing past him no matter where he might be fa- might fall off, even in deep snowy old age. He would find his Susie now inside of his young son. Give that love to the living, he told himself this, spoke it out loud inside his brain, but my presence was like a tug on him. It dragged him back, 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 back. He stared at the small boy he held in his arms. Who are you? He found himself asking, where did you come from? I watched my brother and my father. The truth was different from what we learned in school. The truth was that the line between the living and dead could be, it seemed, murky and blurred. Thank you.